Good morning to you again. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to the Gospel according to John. Today marks the beginning of the privilege that I'll have to be able to preach here with you, and there's no better place to begin that kind of ministry than with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the Gospel of John chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and today we're going to focus on verses 1 to 3. And if you would, please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now. Anytime we come to the Bible, it is a spiritual act that requires spiritual help. And so we pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that he would open our eyes to see things that are true, that he would soften our hearts to believe and to hold fast to the things that are true. And that you would shape us, God, according to your word, so that our lives would look more like Christ, so that he receives the glory that is his due, so that sinners are saved by the preaching of the gospel, so that the church is built up, so that the faith is passed from one generation to the next. We pray all of this, God, knowing that we can do none of it apart from your help. So we ask that you would help us now. Father, please keep me from error as we open your word together. Please grant your people discernment that they would hold fast to the truth, God, and be saved on the last day. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. People love origin stories. By nature, we are drawn to narratives. We're drawn to stories And the origin story is one of the more powerful narratives in our culture today. Think of the seemingly innumerable superhero movies that have come out in the past decade. Every few years we get another take on how Batman became Batman. Or how that bad guy got to be as bad as he is. Why do we get so many of those movies? In part because they make money. But the other part is because we love origin stories. And it's not just limited to superhero movies. We're drawn to real-life origin stories as well. If you like Apple's products, then surely you've heard the story of Steve Jobs building his first computer by hand. Or if you love basketball, like I do, then surely you've heard that Michael Jordan's legendary career started with him getting cut from his high school varsity team. In nearly every field of life, you will find an origin story. How did we get to the thing that we have? Why is that the case? Why are we drawn to these kinds of stories? Well, the reason, at least in part, is that these stories make us feel as though we're on the inside. We feel like insiders. We get to peek behind the curtain and gain some special role in the story itself. We feel a part of Steve Jobs' career. And in a way, then, origin stories are self-serving. They keep us interested by convincing us that the story is really about us. 
It's about our place in the narrative. Like we're the ones in the driver's seat with the author or with the person. We love origin stories because they make us feel like we're in control. But the gospel of Jesus Christ works in an entirely different way. Understand, there is an origin, there is a backstory to Christianity, but it does not elevate us. It does not focus on you and me. Rather, the beginning point of the gospel focuses entirely on God. The beginning of Christianity, the origin of Christianity, predates not only you and me, it predates everything that exists. And no place in the Bible captures this reality more clearly than the opening verses of John's gospel. These first 18 verses that are sometimes called the prologue to John. These verses give us the backstory, so to speak, to Jesus' earthly life and ministry. But... And and this is key, friends. This is no mere origin story. This isn't some uh, cleverly crafted narrative designed to simply hook your attention so that you will listen. No, these verses are the beginning of all things. These verses are the starting point for everything that there is. Think of it this way. Imagine someone has come to the Apostle John and asked him, where does Christianity start? Where does the gospel begin? This passage answers that question. And perhaps surprisingly, John does not start with the manger in Bethlehem. He doesn't start with Isaiah's prophecies of the Messiah that we've sung about so richly this morning. He doesn't start with King David. He doesn't start with the exodus from Egypt. He doesn't start with Abraham. He doesn't even start with the creation account in Genesis. Instead, John starts before all those things, even before time itself. You see, in order to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to start before the beginning, you might say. Before anything that there was. Which is another way of saying that we have to see that the gospel does not begin with you and me. It doesn't begin with humanity's time and existence in history. The gospel begins before all things with the eternal, self-existent, glorious Son who is Himself the very Word of God. That's where Christianity starts. And in light of that, to say that these verses are deep would be an exercise in understatement. These verses are profound. One of the features of John's writing is that his language is relatively simple. It's lots of monosyllable words. It's relatively simple language. His sentences tend to be short and clear, so much so that a child could read this gospel and grasp the main point. And yet that simple language carries profound truth, doesn't it? Profound truth. Take our text this morning, just these first three verses. On the one hand, these verses are simple. John uses a title for Christ, the Word. He uses this title, the Word. And that concept is not hard to grasp. Words have meaning. They express truth. It's a simple concept. And yet there is so much packed into these simple sentences. The Word of verse 1 is also God. The word of verse 3 is also the 
creator of all things. So as you read these simple sentences, you begin to get the sense that we are on holy ground. John is taking us back into eternity. And he's saying, if you want to understand the gospel, let me show you where you have to start. Not with you, not with humanity, not with history, not with creation, but with the eternal triune God who existed before anything else. That's where you start. And so that's what we need to do this morning, friends. If we want to take God's word seriously, we need to go back with John before the beginning and we need to see that the gospel, the good news, does not start with you and me. It starts with the Son, who is the very word of God. In terms of context, these three verses give us the foundational truth about Jesus that you must believe in order to understand the rest of the book. That's not an overstatement. If you want to understand the water into wine in John chapter 2, then you have to start here with verse 1. If you want to understand John 3.16, then you have to start here with the word of God. If you want to understand the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, don't jump to the end. Go back before the beginning so that you will see who it is that dies on Calvary's hill shedding his blood. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand this book, this is where you have to start in verses 1 to 3. So in terms of an outline, let me tell you where we're going to go. I want to draw your attention to three aspects of the Son's identity this morning. This entire sermon is about Jesus Christ. Three aspects of the Son's identity. Let me give them to you in advance. First, we'll consider the divine glory of the Son. Second, we'll see the divine power of the Son. And finally, we'll conclude with the divine authority of the Son. What a place to begin. Not with us, but with the one who deserves our attention, even the Son of God. We start then in verse 1 with the divine glory of the Son. From the outset, we get a sense of John's masterful ability to say profound things in a simple way. Listen again to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Friends, the key concept here is John's use of that title, the Word. This title had a rich background in John's day. For example, Greek philosophy emphasized the role of the Word as this inanimate force that gave life to all things. So it would be similar to our concept of reason. This has led some commentators to conclude that John is taking elements of Greek philosophy in verse 1, and he's reframing them in a Christian way in order to explain something about the gospel. And, and while there is some truth to that claim, the background to this concept of the word, the background is not primarily Greek philosophy. Ask yourself, friends, when, when, you, when you hear the phrase, in the beginning... What comes to your mind? Where does your mind go when you hear in the beginning? To Genesis, right? To the creation account. And that's precisely where John wants you to go. He is purposefully echoing Genesis 1 verse 1 in order to get you and me thinking in the right stream, the biblical stream. So it's not Greek philosophy that informs John. It's scripture. And that means the word in verse 1 is not an impersonal force like reason. 
Now, the word in verse 1 is personal. He's a being. He's a person. And he's connected with God himself. In fact, John tells us a number of things about the word that lead us to an inescapable conclusion. Let's notice some of those together. First of all, the word, according to John, was pre-existent. The first phrase is key, friends. Look at the first phrase again. In the beginning was the word. Now remember, we're thinking about the Bible here. In Genesis, what existed before the beginning? Nothing. Only God. In the same way, here in verse 1, what existed before the beginning? Nothing. Only the word of God. To say it another way, the word did not come into existence at the beginning. Rather, the word existed before the beginning of all things. He is pre-existent. And that means the word is also eternal. Notice the second phrase in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, let's do some theological reasoning here together. When did God come into existence? Answer, never. He has no beginning and no end. I remember one day sitting on the front steps with my oldest son, and he said, Dad, who made the trees? And I said, God did. He said, Dad, who made the grass? I said, God did. He was quiet for a second. He said, Dad, who made God? And I said, no one. God is eternal. And Sam was quiet for a minute, and then he said, can we get some ice cream? (laughs) Yes, that's what I think too, son. When did God begin? Never. He's the beginning. He has no beginning and no end. So we're doing some theological reasoning. If the word was with God, and if God is eternal, then what does that tell us about the word? That he too is eternal. There was never a time that the word was not. These are profound claims in simple sentences, but we haven't even reached the end yet. That comes in the last phrase in verse 1. The preexistent eternal word is also himself God. Listen to this inescapable conclusion. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Here it is. And the Word was God. Simple sentence. Profound claim. John leaves no room for doubt. The Word shares fully in the divine nature of God. He is God. At the same time, the Word shares in that divine nature in a way that is distinct so that he can be with God while also being God. Put the pieces together. The Word was with God, two persons in fellowship, and the Word was God. One nature shared across the persons. Multiple persons, one nature shared together. If that sounds like the beginning of the doctrine of the Trinity, that's because it is. This passage is foundational for what we confess regarding God's triune nature. But our focus this morning is on the Son, the second person of the Trinity, this one whom John calls the Word. What is foundationally true of the Word, according to John? He is preexistent. He was before all things. He is consequentially eternal, without beginning or end. And He is therefore Himself God. When you put those points together, the only conclusion that you can draw is that the Word of verse 1 possesses the divine glory of Almighty God. He is God Himself. Indeed, that's the role of the Word according to John. The Word reveals what God is like. For the Word is Himself God. 
Again, John wants you to think in terms of the Old Testament here. If you want to learn how to interpret the New Testament better, get to know the Old Testament better. He wants you to think in terms of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, where did God reveal Himself? Primarily through His Word. Whether it was the ten words on Mount Sinai or the prophetic word through men like Jeremiah and Joel, God revealed Himself in and through His Word. God's Word then in the Old Testament was His self-expression, His self-revelation. So fast forward now to John's Gospel and you find the same truth working in a much greater way. John's point is that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, is not an impersonal force. It's not an impersonal expression of God's thoughts. No, the Word is the one through whom the invisible God makes Himself known. That's the role of the Son. And it's a a role that only the Son can fulfill. Because only the Son shares fully in the divine glory of God. What does this mean for the rest of John's gospel? We're in chapter 1. We've got 21 chapters to go. What does this mean for the rest of the book? Well, I said earlier that in order to understand the rest of the book, you have to understand these opening verses. So what does verse 1 tell us about the remaining 21 chapters? Well, it helps me to think in terms of images. So think of verse 1 as the lens that you have to put on in order to read the rest of the book Clearly, verse 1 is like a pair of glasses, like a pair of gospel glasses. And it provides clear sight. You put on the lenses of verse 1 and you see the truth. So we ask the question, who is Jesus? And then we look through the lens of verse 1 and we answer that He is the Word of God, the Son who shares fully in God's glory. We ask the question, what has Jesus come to do? He's come to make God known. Primarily in the salvation of sinners like you and me, calling us to repentance and faith. Everything else that happens in John's gospel comes through that lens. The lens of verse 1, the lens of divine glory. And that means there is no disinterested response to Jesus Christ. You cannot deal with Jesus academically. You cannot read verse 1 and say, oh, I find that interesting. This, this Jesus fellow is interesting, but I don't think I will follow him. You cannot read verse 1 and say, this Jesus was a good teacher, but he doesn't demand my life. You can't do that. Those, verses, those responses fail to understand the truth of verse 1. Jesus is not merely a man who might interest you. He's not just a good teacher who might help you live a better life. He is the Word of God, the eternal Son, who has come into the world to reveal God and to call sinners to repentance and faith. In fact, towards the end of the book, I'm going to break a cardinal rule of preaching and tell you what the end is. Towards the end of the book, John tells you why he writes. He gives you his purpose. He tells you how you ought to respond. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That starts in verse 1. Right now, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and therefore the only response to Him is to trust Him with your life. There is no disinterested response to Jesus. 
That response of trust is further established in the second aspect of the son's identity. If we're going to move from verse 1 to verse 3, the second aspect of the son's identity is the divine power of the son. The divine power of the son. Before we get to verse 3, you'll notice the repetition John offers in verse 2. This is an emphatic restatement of the opening verse. Look there again, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that sounds repetitive in our English translations, and John is repeating himself, but it's repetition for emphasis. You could also put verse 2 like this. This one, John says, this very word that I'm talking about, this one and not another one, this one was in the beginning with God. So again, the point is clear. The Word is the pre-existent, eternal, fully divine Son of God. John doesn't want you to miss that. As we come to verse 3, John continues to emphasize the point. If verse 1 focused on the nature of the Word, verse 3 highlights His work, what He does. Listen to the opening phrase in verse 3, and notice how the Genesis creation account continues to shape John's message. Verse 3. All things were made through Him. That is, through the Word. Now, some people have said that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is the most staggering sentence in the Bible. And I might agree with them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing. And then solely by the power of God, there was everything. That's how the Bible begins. And that's where the biblical worldview begins, with God's power displayed in creation. But here in John chapter 1, the apostle takes that beginning truth and he narrows it down to focus us on the Son. All things were made through Him, through the Word of God. In other words, the Word is the personal agent through whom the Almighty God carried out the work of creation. God created, and His power was at work in and through His Son. That's the point of verse 3. And understand, friends, this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament regarding the Son of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that our brother read earlier in the service, "...by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, by Him, by the Son." Or 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Or perhaps most powerfully, think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. So do you hear that emphasis over and over across the New Testament? God Almighty created everything and His divine power was at work where? In and through His Son, who is the very Word of God. Now, maybe you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second. Did God create everything or did the Son create everything? And John would say, Yes, that's my point. It's exactly what I want you to see. The Son 
is himself the very power of God that brings everything into existence. Every single molecule in the universe exists by the word of God. Every single molecule exists because Jesus says so. All things hold together in him. In fact, friends, this is part of what it means to live every day with your heart and mind centered on Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we use phrases like, I want to live for Christ today, and we don't always flesh out what that means. Here is some of the fleshing out. What does that mean? It means that everything you see is testifying to you of the power of Christ. Everything. Every majestic mountain tells you that his power is higher than the heavens, and every ocean depth tells you that his power has no limits. Every sunrise tells you that his power endures forever, and every change of seasons tells you that his strength is constant and does not change. All things were made through the sun, and therefore all things ought to remind you that you live for the sun. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to come back to that line of thinking in just a moment. For now, let's try to anticipate where this theme of the Word's power is going in John. We see that the Word has all power with God. Where is that theme going? I want to give you a little background on the structure of John's Gospel. And I want to do this to make a point about the Word's power. Generally speaking, there are two sections to the Gospel of John. There is what is sometimes called the Book of Signs, which is chapter 1 through chapter 12, and then what is sometimes called the book of glory, chapter 13 through the end of the book. The book of signs focuses on seven signs that Jesus performs, seven mighty deeds, the first being the water into wine in chapter 2. The book of glory focuses on Jesus teaching us how to know the Father, and then the largest portion of it is spent on the last week of his life. So, for simplicity's sake, we could say that the Gospel of John focuses on Jesus' deeds and his words. What he does, and then what he says. Now, what does that have to do with Christ's power? To put it plainly, everything. Christ's deeds are not simply astonishing miracles. They are the acts of God in human flesh. And Jesus' teaching is not merely wise sayings. His words are the revelation of God in human flesh. To see Jesus act is to witness God acting in history for the salvation of His people. And to hear Jesus teach is to hear God Himself revealing His word for the salvation and instruction of His people. To say it another way, The power of Jesus, which is displayed chapter after chapter in this book, the power of Jesus is not intended to simply astound you. It's meant to win your allegiance and to demand your life and to anchor your faith. John doesn't want you to say, wow, that's amazing. He wants you to say, wow, this man owns my life. And I submit to him in faith. The very power that Jesus has is the power of God and it demands everything from you and me. And that takes us right into the third and final aspect 
of the son's identity. And this is where the application becomes the clearest for us. Let's end with this. The divine authority of the son. The divine authority of the son. As, as before, John employs some repetition. He labors to ensure that we understand these truths about Christ. Notice the repetition in the second half of verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We ought to appreciate the universal scope at this point. Notice the absolute language in both halves of verse 3. All things and not a single thing. In other words, it's universal. Everything that is exists because of the Word of God. As an aside, just as an aside, this is why the doctrine of creation is essential to the Christian worldview. There are a number of third-tier issues in the Christian life, but the doctrine of creation is not one of them. Without the doctrine of creation, the rest of the biblical worldview falls apart. And that includes the truth about Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope you grasp this morning where John's presentation of the good news begins. It begins with the Son's role in creating everything. So, we have to affirm the doctrine of creation in order to defend the historicity of Genesis, for example, which is very significant. But more than that, we have to affirm the doctrine of creation because of Christ, because of the gospel. If we lose creation, we lose the gospel. This is where John begins with the word creating all things. And therefore, that's where all of our biblical thinking has to begin, with God creating all things. The doctrine of creation is essential. That's an aside. Back to verse 3. The reference to creation has an important application for those who read John's Gospel. Think of the doctrine of creation as a two-sided coin. I told you I like images. They help me think clearly. Think of the doctrine of creation as a two-sided coin. On one side is God's role in creating all things. That's what John teaches in verse 3. What's the other side of that coin? What's the other side of the doctrine of creation? The answer is lordship, authority, ownership. That's the other side. That's the application that John is getting at here at the beginning of his book. Since all things were made through the Son, then all things belong to the Son. He owns them. He reigns over them. Since nothing was made without, a, without the Son, then not a single thing exists outside of His authority. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. They all obey the Son. He is Lord over everything. And friends, this is the truth that's going to resound chapter after chapter in John. Time and time again, John's presentation of Jesus lands right here on the Lordship of Christ. Think, for example, of those famous I am statements in John. There are seven signs in John, and there are seven I am statements. You know them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. What is Jesus saying in those I am statements? Now, he's saying many things. But the one thing that runs through every saying is this truth 
right here from verse 3, that all things belong to Him, that all people are accountable to Him, that He alone is Lord, that He alone has authority over everything that exists. And that includes you and me. That includes my life and yours. Friends, John does not wait to tell you what he wants you to do with this book. Verse 3 is telling you straight away, Jesus Christ demands your life, and you are accountable to Him because He made you. The rest of John's Gospel flows from this point, from the authority of the Son of God. And understand, Jesus' authority is not like the authority of a parent or a police officer. He's not like an elected official or an appointed judge. Christ is Lord because Christ is God. Christ has authority because He made everything, including you and me. That's why He is the Lord. And that's why all true understanding of the gospel begins at this point with submission to the Word of God, with submission to the Son. Is that true of you this morning? Is your life submitted to the Son of God in faith? Again, if we fast forward to the end of the book, John tells us what the purpose is, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you would have life in His name. Is your life submitted to the Son of God in faith? Friends, that submission begins with repentance and faith. It begins with confessing that you are a sinner. That you have defied God's authority in favor of your own. And that confession is followed by trust in Christ alone to provide forgiveness through His blood. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, then this is the place that you have to begin. You have to begin here with the question of, is my life in allegiance to the Son through repentance and faith? If you are a Christian this morning, then in a sense, this is where you have to begin as well. Listen, we don't submit to the Lordship of Christ only a single time. It's not something you do once and then never think about again. It's not just a box that you check with the decision mark and say, I did that, Jesus is my Lord, I can live however I want now. That's not what it means to be a Christian. In some sense, being a Christian is the daily expression of repentance and faith. It's daily confessing your sin and your need for Christ. It's daily holding up your life to the straight edge of the Bible and asking, do I live in submission to Jesus? Do my words and my thoughts and my actions reveal that Christ is my Lord? Am I living in such a way that makes the truth of verses 1 through 3 clear? That the Son is my Lord. Friends, that's what the Christian life requires. Not a one-time submission to Jesus, but a daily submission to Jesus. Turning your life over to Him. Submitting to Him as you take in His Word. Believer, is that true of you today? Are you taking in His Word? Are you seeking to grow in repentance and faith and godliness? If not, there's no better time than today to renew your commitment to follow Christ by following His Word. 
today. There's no better time than today to pray for the Spirit to convict you of sin and lead you to embrace again the forgiveness that's found only in Christ Jesus. And so, that's my prayer for this church, that even now, we would be renewed in our submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God from whom all things exist. The gospel doesn't begin with us, brothers and sisters. The origin of Christianity is about more than you and me. Our good news begins before all things with the eternal Son of God who was made flesh for us and for our salvation. His glory is the glory of God. His power is the power of God. His authority is the authority of God. And so may we live today and every day in humble submission to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have only begun to uncover the, the fringes of your glory, as the book of Job tells us. There's so much more to who you are in Jesus Christ than what we can see, than what we can comprehend. But we do pray, God, that you would take our feeble attempts to think your thoughts after you, and that you would bear fruit, God that you would shape us after the likeness of Christ, that we would live for his glory, that we would depend upon his power, and that we would display his authority. God, help us. Help us. May this church be known, Father, for the gospel of Christ. May it ring out more and more, more than it has and more than it might have ever before, God. May it ring out here that this is a place where Christ reigns as Lord. Please, God, please, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We ask you to work, to take these words now and bear fruit from them for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.